First of all, it's good to be back uh, up here, and just uh, I love the word. I love the, the opportunity to share it. When you think about life after the death of this physical body that you're walking around in now, what does that life look like? I'm sure you've heard other people say the same kinds of things about about heaven and eternity that, that I've heard them say. Some picture heaven as the place where they finally just get to really chill. Rest in peace. The perfect, eternal rest of the soul. No big challenges. No work to be done, certainly. Nothing much to be done at all. Just lots and lots of blissful rest. But does that match up with what the Bible actually says about what comes after this life? Others envision heaven as the place where they finally get all their unmet desires fulfilled. Sort of a personally customized heaven where you get to name it and it's yours. The crazy cat lady will get all 50 of her beloved cats back. But without all those nasty litter boxes. The frustrated artist thinks when I get to heaven, I'll finally be able to paint like Monet. Such views of heaven are focused on our fulfillment as we picture fulfillment, not as God does. Is that really what eternity will be like for the people of God? Many very well-meaning Christians envision heaven as one big never-ending worship service where we will stand shoulder to shoulder day and night before the throne of God, beholding Him and singing His praises. No new experiences after the first 5,000 years or even after the first five days. No creative activity for the redeemed of God outside the realm of everlasting corporate worship. No engagement with God's creation. No forward motion. Just lots of really amazing worship in the presence of the most beautiful and amazing person that ever existed. If you were an angel, especially one whom God had created for that very role, that might be a fitting way for you to spend eternity. But what if you're a man or a woman or a boy or girl who was created in the image of God to act as God's agent exercising dominion over His creation on His behalf. Just as Adam and Eve were blessed to do in the garden before sin and the curse of sin ever entered the picture. For us who are the people of God and even for those who might simply be investigating what the Bible claims about the next life, all of these various Views that we've heard about heaven raise two fundamentally important questions. First, does the Bible actually tell us anything meaningful about heaven and eternity? Or is it so mysterious about such things that we're really just left to guess what eternity will be like? Secondly, does it really matter now? Is it really of any value to us to know about or to spend time thinking about what will happen when our life in these mortal bodies comes to an end? Or would we actually be better equipped to live well now if we just determined to cross that bridge when we come to it? 
After all, we don't want to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, right? And those two questions are, of course, very much connected to each other because if there is no way for us to actually know anything substantive about eternity, then any time that we invest in thinking on such things never gets above the level of speculation. This morning, my purpose is to arrive in this introductory message at biblically derived answers to those two very straightforward questions. Has God actually told us anything meaningful about eternity? And if so, does it matter to us now? The answers that I'll present will not be comprehensive. They will not be all-encompassing answers that tell us everything the Bible has to say about those two questions. That would take a lot longer than I had this morning. But I believe they will be true to God's Word and they will explain why, why we're bothering to engage in this new series over the next few weeks, several weeks. And what I'd really love to see happen is for you guys to start to get as excited about this as I am, because it's pretty amazing. The primary text of Scripture that we're going to consider this morning is the one we just read, 1 Corinthians 2. And in order to, to understand how all of this kind of fits together, we have to see that chapter in its context. The statement that Paul makes in that chapter about eternity is just one little sub-point in the chapter. What the chapter is fundamentally about is the incomparable wisdom and power that is found exclusively in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul had some very forceful words for the Christians at Corinth. He commanded them to set aside the things that were creating divisions between them. And it's pretty apparent from Paul's words that the root of those divisions was all about allegiance to men. There was a kind of competition that had arisen among the believers in Corinth about which leader, which preacher was the cleverest and most wise. One would say, I am of Paul. Another would say, I am of Apollos. And another, I am of Peter. And then, of course, there was the claim to trump all of them. I? <laughs> I am of Christ. Along those same lines, they were creating little clubs based on who had been baptized by which man. Paul recognized that the very heart of these divisions was all about men and not at all about Christ. So he proceeded to blast away at the very foundation of the thinking that had caused these divisions. In 117, 1 Corinthians 117, he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. See, he's saying... It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. He's saying that what's worthy of our devotion and what should unite us rather than divide us is not the cleverness or oratorical skill of a particular teacher. It is the person of Jesus Christ and the message that we bear concerning Jesus Christ. That which Paul calls the word of the cross. When we turn our focus onto 
the strengths of men, we nullify the power of the cross. In 118, he explains that the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is the power of God? The message. What did he say in Romans 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. Paul goes on in the rest of 1 Corinthians 1 to prevent a very stark contrast between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. The wisdom that belongs to God and comes from God. He says that to this lost world, the message about Jesus Christ is intolerable foolishness. But to us who belong to Christ, He Himself is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In the last few verses of chapter 1, Paul says that no man has anything at all to boast about before God. He says, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, the only wisdom that we have that's worth having or worth sharing is all about Jesus Christ. The only power that we have to change lives is the power that Christ has invested in the simple revolutionary message of the Gospel itself. It is unlike any other message ever presented on this earth. Chapter 2 continues with that very important theme, the wisdom that is focused entirely on a person. In the first few verses of that chapter, Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And then, lest his readers think that he's saying wisdom doesn't matter, he again makes it clear that there is a wisdom that's absolutely indispensable to us as God's children. And that's the wisdom that belongs to God Himself. He says, we do, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, and then verse 7, he says, we speak God's wisdom. Now before we go any further, and we will talk about eternity here shortly, before we go any further, we need to understand what Paul means when he uses the word wisdom. What is wisdom in the Bible? And how is it different from the wisdom of the world that he's contrasting it with? Proverbs 9, verse 10, good memory verse, says, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of wisdom. And by the way, if you finish Proverbs, you find out it's the beginning, the middle, and the end. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In both Old and New Testaments, wisdom as God defines it is the skill to live well that comes from knowing and understanding who God is and what God therefore does. Wisdom is what makes the connection in us between 
right knowledge and right action. A truly wise man never merely knows wise things. He's not some guru sitting on a mountain dispensing information to seekers of wisdom. He does wise things. Throughout the Bible, wisdom is the God-given skill to live well because you know God well and you respond accordingly. Now that, of course, is not the same thing as knowing everything there is to know about God. You know how long it will take us to do that? Forever and we won't be finished. We who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ are going to get to spend the rest of eternity discovering the wonderful magnitude and worthiness of our God. But God has revealed certain things to His people now. Quite a lot of things about Himself and about His agenda in order to equip us to live well for Him. And those things have come to us in a person. Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God and the power. In the rest of chapter 2, Paul proceeds to tell us still more about this incomparable wisdom that equips us for life. One thing he tells us is that it's a wisdom that's not of this age. Now, what does that mean, this age? It means the entire mindset and culture that surrounds us in this world. He says, verse 6, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature or complete. A wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. And then he says, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. Because if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Why? Because that wisdom is all about Him. Paul makes it as clear as can be that this world and this age are absolutely clueless when it comes to this true wisdom to which he's referring. By the way, when Paul talks about the rulers of this age, if you look how he uses that in other places, especially Ephesians 6, you find out that he means both heavenly powers and earthly powers. Demons and men who are consumed with furthering the agenda of this god rejecting world. Be clear about this, please. You will never, ever get wisdom from those who reject Jesus Christ. It's not possible. Because the only real wisdom that exists comes from God and it's all about Jesus Christ. All of the philosophies and religions contrived by men are nothing but pathetic foolishness to God. Some of them, by the way, sound marvelous. But they are empty precisely because real wisdom is about a person. So every philosophy or religion that either misrepresents that person or leaves him out is foolishness. When I was a kid, and some of you remember this, some of you my age and older, when I was a kid, I watched news footage of Buddhist monks in Vietnam sitting down in a lotus position in a public square, dousing themselves with fuel and igniting themselves with a match and sitting there completely quiet and completely still while they burned to death. 
And I was impressed. Because I knew that there was absolutely no way I could pull that off. I'd be screaming and doing everything that I possibly could to put myself out. That's mind over body at a level that I cannot duplicate. But 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, If I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And beloved, if I have the mental discipline to burn myself to a crisp without a whimper, but I do not have Christ, I am a fool of the highest order. Paul says that the rulers of this age do not even understand what true wisdom is. But it's not just the rulers that are clueless. Paul says this is, this is a wisdom not of, the, not of this age, and he says this is a wisdom not of man. 1 Corinthians 2.9, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and he says that the things that constitute this true wisdom are things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. Not only are the world system and its rulers clueless about real wisdom, all of mankind is clueless about real wisdom if left to their own devices. The wisdom to which Paul keeps pointing is about things that are unknown to men because they are unknowable to men unless God makes them known. They are things unseen by men, things men have never heard, things that have not even occurred. And what are these things? What are these things that make men truly wise? Well, we've already seen that Paul keeps tying this whole matter of wisdom, real godly wisdom, back to a person, the person of Christ, and to an event, the crucifixion of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.22, Indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified. The person and the event. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, he says pretty much the same thing. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The person and the event. Then at the end of verse 9, Paul adds another kind of facet to this wisdom. Something he hasn't talked about before that. He says, the things that make up true wisdom include all that God has prepared for those who love Him. What does that mean? All that God has prepared for those who love Him. Is Paul talking about the works that God has prepared for us to enter into that he mentions in Ephesians 2.10? I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Just a couple of verses earlier in verse 7, he said, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now Paul talks a lot about God's glory in his letters, but in those rare passages in which he talks about our glory, he's talking about something that hasn't happened yet. He's talking about something that's going to happen later. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 25, Paul says that we who are the children of God must suffer with Christ now 
in order that we may be glorified with Him later. By the way, why should we think that if Jesus didn't get glorified until He died, that we should be glorified before we die? The servant is not greater than his master. Paul says, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. And that glory is Christ's glory. But then he says, all of creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth, waiting, longing for a day that's yet to come. And what is the day that creation is waiting for? Our glorification day. The day when we will fully lay hold of all that belongs to us as God's adopted children. And then Paul says, that, that's our hope. Not hope the way the world thinks of hope. Not something we wish would happen, but that might not happen. When Paul talks about hope, when the New Testament talks about hope, it's talking about the rock-solid certainty that God is going to fulfill His promises. Promises that come from the God who cannot lie. And our hope, that for which we are eagerly waiting, is the day we fully receive all that God has in store for us as His adopted sons. That's what that part of Romans 8 is all about. The day we receive all that God has prepared for those who love Him. By the way, that phrase, those who love Him, is used in Romans 8. The one that we saw in 1 Corinthians 2. It's used in Romans 8. Just a few verses later, Paul makes this statement. Many of you know this verse really well. And we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God. And who is that? It's those who were called according to His purpose. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. There's a lot of powerful words there, but what I... What I want you to see is very simple. To us who love God, us who have become His people by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, God promises that He is going to conform us to His Son. He's going to finish what He started in us. He's going to get us all the way to our glorification day when He will put sin completely away from us and we will be what we were created to be this morning. I can't remember which brother read it. First John chapter 3. We're children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be, but this we know. <laughs> when we see Him, we will be like Him for we will see Him as He truly is. In 1 Corinthians 2, when Paul refers to all that God has prepared for those who love Him, he's talking about our hope about what God has made ready for us in eternity. When Jesus was here the first time, He talked about making things ready. Let me ask you this. If you happen to be with Jesus among His disciples on the night that He was arrested, the night before He was crucified, would you expect that the things He said to His disciples that night were probably pretty important? In John 14, verses 1-3, through Jesus said, 
Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare to make ready a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself so that where I am, there you may be also. What Jesus is preparing for us is a place in which we will experience perfection of union and sweet fellowship with Him forever. One of the messages in this series will be devoted to that. The Apostle John many years later spoke again of a place that Jesus had prepared for His people. Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven, the first heaven and the first earth, passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what Jesus has been preparing for us ever since He ascended from the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1. The place in which we will dwell with Him as His bride. And He's been preparing the bride too. That's us. In 1 Corinthians 2, when Paul declares that the the wisdom of God that the world knows nothing about includes all that God has prepared for those who love Him, he's talking about our glorious destiny in Jesus Christ. The destiny that's guaranteed to us because Jesus was crucified to pay the eternal penalty for our sin. And because Jesus was raised from the dead proving that that payment was sufficient and perfect. When we know these things about God and about God's plan, and when we order our lives accordingly, you know what happens to us? We become wise. These things equip us to live well because they tell us what our God is like. And as servants of God who have been made friends of God, they tell us what God is doing. In John 15, Jesus said, the slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. Because friends get to know what their master is doing. We're slaves who are made friends. And knowing God's agenda is revolutionary. What could be wiser than living life on the same page as God? But here's the kicker. How can we possibly come to know these wonderful things that instill genuine godly wisdom if they have never been seen by men, if they have never been heard by men, if they have never even occurred to men? Praise God that Paul directly answers that question in the very next verse of 1 Corinthians 2. When Randy Alcorn was writing this little book simply titled Heaven, a pastor friend of his came into his study and asked him what he was working on. And Randy said, "Uh, I'm writing a big book on heaven. And his friend said something to Randy that 
he had heard that Randy had heard before and that he's heard many times since. His friend said to him, well, since Scripture says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him, what are you planning to write about? At that point, Randy respectfully said to him what he always says. He said, brother, you didn't complete the sentence. you got to read verse 10. So let me read verse, 10, verse 9 together with verse 10 and a couple of verses after that. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might know what? The things freely given to us by God. And Paul goes on to say that the way God has revealed these otherwise unknowable things to us as His children is through the very words that Paul and the other apostles were teaching to the churches. The words of Scripture. Both the Old Testament and the new revelation that God was giving through them. Not words taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Holy Spirit. Combining spiritual with spiritual. That is, combining the spiritual thoughts that come straight from the mind of God with spiritual words that come from the Holy Spirit of God who alone knows the mind of God. We have the author of Scripture living inside of us. God has revealed these amazing things to us through the Spirit working through the Word. Paul's whole point in all of 1 Corinthians 1-3, through three chapters, is that we, the redeemed children of God, have been given the very wisdom of God. The same true wisdom about which the world is clueless. And that wisdom is entirely about Jesus Christ and what He accomplished at the cross. That wisdom looks back to the cross even as it looks forward to the full impact of the cross to all that God has prepared for those who love Him. What we're going to be doing in this series is looking more intently at things God says we are supposed to know as His children, not at things that we can't know. And we'll do so precisely because God says that it serves His purposes when we do. It makes us wise so we will be useful It makes us powerfully used by God in this life because we are living in light of eternity. It's wisdom that matters now. I said earlier that the true wisdom that comes from knowing God's character and God's agenda makes the connection in us between knowing and doing. In other words, it determines how we live. And we will not know how to live if we do not know what's coming. That is what God tells us about what's coming. I'm not talking about everything there is to know. Again, we're going to spend eternity discovering that. I'm talking about what God has told us. 
regarding what's coming. And let me show you what I mean directly from Scripture. We will not know how to live if we do not know what's coming. And when we do know what's coming, we know how to live. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. It's a 58 verse chapter, so we're not, not going to go through a lot of it. <laughs> but I, I'm going to give you just some, some high points. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins by talking about the centrality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, in effect, you know, do you want to know what's of first and greatest importance? Here it is. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. And the resurrected Christ appeared to truckloads of people, most of whom were still alive when Paul was writing these things and could have said, he's lying about this, he's making this stuff up. But they didn't because he wasn't. And lastly, Paul says the resurrected Christ appeared to him. Paul, in person. But then Paul goes on. He says all of his preaching and all of our faith depends on the fact that Jesus was really physically raised from the dead and is alive now. He says if Christ was not raised from the dead, everything about our faith in Him is useless. We are still in our sins and we are of all people most to be pitied because we have invested our lives in a pathetic lie. But of course, He doesn't stop there. His next statement is, but now Christ has been raised. The first fruits of the resurrection and we're the latter fruits. And of course, Paul knew that to be true firsthand because Jesus Christ had appeared to him a Christ-hater, a killer of Christians on the road to Damascus. He blinded him and he turned his life right side up. And everything about Paul changed in that instant. That's what happens when you meet the resurrected Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our resurrection. And then, just as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 2 that we've been looking at, he looks forward to our glorification day, our resurrection. He says that the sting of death has been removed. The death is now no threat whatsoever to us who believe in Jesus Christ precisely because His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Our earthly bodies are going to be made into heavenly bodies. This imperishable is going to put on, this perishable is going to put on imperishable. This mortal is going to put on immortality. That's going to happen because of Christ's resurrection. Then finally, Paul comes to the so what? In the very last verse of a 58 verse chapter, Paul comes to the so what? So if you think it takes me long to get to application, just read Paul. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Why is it not in vain? Because His resurrection guarantees your resurrection. And you know something very important about what's coming. 
That beautiful, powerful exhortation is the punchline of the greatest treatise on resurrection in the whole Bible. Knowing what lies ahead changes everything. Knowing our Father's agenda gives us an eternal perspective that the world cannot have. It gives us courage in the midst of trials and struggles in a world that is still under the curse. A world filled with pain and suffering and poverty and injustice. That wonderful knowledge of what God has prepared for us who belong to Him tells us that we are not living for what we can lay our hands on now. We are living for what we know is coming. Hope that is seen is not hope at all. When we live and act in light of these precious and magnificent promises, we live wisely. We are powerfully used by God to expand and advance His kingdom. That is why we're doing this series. Because God has, in fact, had a lot to say about our hope and that hope matters a lot. It is the anchor of the soul. It makes us wise. It tells us why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing. It tells us the essential purpose and destiny of all things. It makes us runners instead of spectators. It makes us overcomers instead of copers. The last point I want to make is that in this series there will be no speculation allowed. Some of you may have been concerned about that. As we proceed through this study, I'll expect you to hold my feet to the refining fire of God's Word. If I say something that doesn't match up with what you see in here, you should not only feel free to point it out to me, you should feel obligated to point it out to me. As I've read and listened to what other preachers and writers have said about all this, about what God has told us about eternity, I've encountered some assertions that clearly derive, that clearly come from God's Word. And I've encountered other assertions that I believe stray very far from God's Word. Sometimes from the same author. I'm going to give you a quick example without verbally naming names just so you can get the flavor of this. I came upon a chapter in one book in which a very reputable Christian author was expounding on the implications of God's plan to redeem both the physical and spiritual realms because both have been affected by the curse, by the way, and to unite the two into one when Christ makes all things new. His premise was both biblically sound and biblically well-defended. He explained that when the Judahites were living in exile in Babylon, God commanded them to pray for the well-being of the city into which He had sent them in exile. He told them that the shalom, the well-being, the pervasive peace of that city would be their shalom. Up to that point, his argument was rigorously biblical. But then he stunned me with this statement. He said, seeking the shalom of the city means remembering that all people have been endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Such as the right to earn a living wage, dwell in safe neighborhoods, freely participate in society, and access clean drinking water and basic medical care. I began to wonder if he was about to mention free high-speed internet. 
Did you guys know, by the way, that in July, excuse me, in June of 2011, a report commissioned by the United Nations declared that cutting off anyone's access to the internet was a fundamental violation of human rights. Brothers and sisters, if during this series or any other series, you hear me quote the Declaration of Independence instead of the Bible to support an assertion about how we're supposed to live in light of eternity, you have my permission to shoot me. Or at least fire me. I do not understand why some Christian preachers and authors find it necessary to speculate either about the nature of our hope or about our assignment now in light of that hope when God has actually been very straightforward about both of those things. He's told us what we need to know about both of those things. So we don't have to look further than what He has said. Where I have to get off the boat relative to some, I'm afraid, too much of what's being written and preached on this important topic is right here. I have no interest in speculating about what eternity will be like or in speculating about what God would have us do about it. If there ends up being baseball in heaven or even a glorified San Antonio Spurs basketball team with David Robinson back at the helm, and if you know me, you know that would be wonderful. That'll be fun, but you know what? I have no basis in Scripture for envisioning that any such thing will be part of our experience in the eternity that God has prepared for those who love Him. And I don't plan to waste your time talking about things that don't have any foundation in God's Word. I care only that you and I will know better what God has actually told us about eternity in order that we may be wiser and more useful to Him now to carry out the commission that He has explicitly given us in His Word, not some other commission. The clear assertions of Scripture regarding both of those things are going to keep us plenty busy for the next several weeks, and I promise you we will not exhaust what the Bible says about it. <laughs> and that's perfectly fine, of course. I don't expect ever to exhaust what God says about anything. Because every time I come to God's Word, I am left staggering in awe over His divine genius and wanting more of Him. I encourage you to stay with us as we consider these things. It will be worth your time. Dear Father, open the eyes of our hearts to see what You want us to know about all that You have made ready for Your people whom You have made Your treasured possession so that we may live wisely and fruitfully now in the light of that wonderful knowledge. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.